From Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Fino Radin, and on this show, I chat with artists, collectors, curators, conservators, and more, people who are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. On today's show, we have such a special guest. My name is Legacy Russell. I'm the Associate Curator of Exhibitions at the Studio Museum in Harlem here in New York City and the forthcoming Executive Director and Chief Curator at The Kitchen, also in New York. Legacy is also the author of the recently published Glitch Feminism, A Manifesto. I simply had to have Legacy on the show after reading this book, this past summer. The book came out just before the pandemic started, but the timing is uncanny, not only because so much of the art world was forced to go online during the pandemic, and the book in some ways can serve as a field guide for newcomers, but also at the level of the individual. So many people found themselves spending so much of their day in cyberspace, a place that often has the potential for more expansiveness for gender expression and performance, something that the book articulates more beautifully than I possibly could. In addition to presenting some of the most relevant art of our time and serving quite literally as a manifesto for a new era of gender expansiveness and a less harmful cyberspace, the book is also deeply personal. Legacy brings us along to witness their early experiences and experiments in cyberspace in the age of the early web. And we began our conversation there. I asked Legacy, what were the experiences growing up that really began her life in the arts? I mean, I always love to say that my life and, you know, kind of commitment to art and curiosity about it came from outside of institutional spaces. I had the great joy and privilege of growing up in the East Village in a period of time where the East Village certainly was not what it is now. Um, it was not, you know, to some degree, kind of a bit of a, a strip mall. Like, it, you know, it, it, like it's a place that has become like hyper commercialized with like all of these, you know, kind of intense um, chains now. Now having taken over what used to be, you know, much more intimate family businesses and community organizations. So I was, you know, a kid in a space where this um, area of New York was changing in so many ways. And, you know, the ongoing investment into the possibilities of, of, you know, the future of what the East Village should be was an ongoing question. It was, you know, persistently asked across um, the work that my parents did as community organizers. The work that they, you know, also um, kind of engaged me in and thinking about what it means to be part of a, a, a creative community, because, you know, my father was a photographer who grew up in Harlem. My mom was a, a gerontologist and she was from Hawaii. So they you know, met in the East Village and um, the ways in which I think that they had kind of visioned building a family in this place was, you know, to think about it being something that was as much a community project as it was, you know, a family um, in a nuclear way project. Right. So this kind of queering of a kind of family. Family, um, presence was certainly part of the ways in which, um, you know, I was brought into creative work and meeting amazing folks and makers from a very early age. And also too, my mom, I think, you know, had me um, kind of deeply invested in, you know, the theater for the new city and PS 122 and, um, you know, going to Joe's pub, you know, getting an opportunity to, um, you know, queue up super early in the morning to get my tickets to go to Shakespeare in the park. Right. 
right? Like there are these moments of being a kid and you kind of, you know, being able to have these amazing eye-opening experiences. You know, I, I can remember, um, for example, seeing Patti Smith perform um, at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. Like these are things that were so just extraordinary, right? And and thinking about the ways where oftentimes um, there is an assumption, right? That growing up as a New Yorker, that um, we're all brought into museums from an early age. But, you know, I feel um, uniquely blessed to be able to say that, like, you know, I had a different perspective from early on that museums were not the only place that I understood that art could be. In fact, actually, um, you know, I understood that often so much happened outside of the walls of museums. For me, when I think about like my beginnings, a lot of my, um, you know, great joys and inspirations also come from going out, literally like being a club kid and going out and, you know, being in a downtown scene and having a better understanding of the ways in which public space really was performance space. It was art space. It was making space, right? It was activist space, right? That these were networks that were really critical to the advancement of art and culture and amazing meeting places, right? Where you really could kind of convene with your idols. You know, for me, I think about, you know, in terms of performance, that those nascent experiences of, of being kind of brought into the world, really seeing how art could embed itself, um, you know, in the spaces around us in our everyday, that that actually was the beginning of some of what has now become this epic love affair, right? Of, of um, you know, art and the institution. And thinking, too, through the responsibility of what a curator has to these histories, which is how do you kind of think about the very real, um, you know, uh, presences that, you know, of kind of black and queer histories and feminist histories that have been radical in advancing art and culture um, across New York and, you know, across the U.S. and across the world. Right. Um, but also appreciate, too, that so much has been, um, you know, erased and whitewashed over time and that, you know, the act responsibility of the curator, hopefully, is to think through the ways that, um, you know, in doing this work of research and, and um, collaboration with artists and, and with these histories, that these stories can be preserved, right, and that they can be recontextualized um, and celebrated. Yeah. So, I mean, curator is a really specific career path. So um, what was it ultimately that led you to the role of curation? Oh my gosh. Well, I always say actually, like if I could do it all again, like I actually do think the pathway of conservator and registrar also would be something that I probably um, as a kid would have loved to be exposed to at an earlier age. I think um, I, I didn't even fully have a, a full scope and understanding of the possibilities of what that institutional work could even look like and also how deeply collective it is, right? That actually that it is not um, contrary to, I think, what is sometimes a systemic myth, the institutional space. It's not a curator who is the brain of the institution, right? That that is a model of institution that actually is problematic. It's hierarchical. Um, it engages, of course, the kind of complex dynamics that are certainly, you know, racialized and class oriented and deeply gendered often too. Um, across institutional work. So, you know, I think that the education, the teaching of, right, what it means to even be a curator came through multiple channels. And one of them was certainly the projects and, and things that I, you know, kind of was watching and looking at, admiring, and, and the people in the world who were doing exciting work. Thelma Golden, of course, being one of those people, like such an icon, and through and beyond her work at the SUNY Museum in Harlem was so pivotal. Um, certainly, you know, for a young Black person, like being able to, to see the possibility of that work of leadership in the world, you know, was so expansive. But then also as well, really thinking about the fact that, you know, when I was in school, I got a fellowship uh, to work at the Met 
for a summer. And it was in that period of time that I think that like that was the, the really the first step because I was curious about all these different parts of what it meant to work within um, the arts. But it was the, the experience of being at the Met that really allowed me to best understand perhaps the different constituents that institutions have to answer to. And I had spent a summer going between the archives of 19th century modern and contemporary um, and then of course um, working as well within education and audience development and you know these are two unusual things to kind of come into contact with each other right within the arc of a fellowship but I felt very grateful that I was placed within these different departments because it gave me the greatest perspective and best understanding actually some of the great challenges that come from trying to ask this question like who are our publics what does that work look like um, and so it was through that experience I was really galvanized I think to begin that journeying um, institutionally through first steps into education, um, working closely to think about ways of bringing projects and programs to younger publics, right? Because of course that that entry point felt really valuable and meaningful to me. But then as well to be very proud and talking about my pathway from working in education inside of institutional spaces to growing as a curator. And that also, I think, you know, at the time felt um, quite controversial, but I think more and more now, um, you know, there, that kind of crossover between departments of education and curatorial work is um, much more permeable than I think it has ever been. And that is something that um, has been really exciting to see the sort of um, modernity that is possible within doing that collective work. And two, to understand that, you know, being able to engage publics through an educational perspective and bring that work and research, that important history into curatorial work. Um, and then again, of course, in close collaboration with my dear colleagues in educational work as well becomes really instrumental, I think, to the way in which I view curatorial practice, that it is a curator's responsibility to be um, active and present in um, thinking about access and opening up the story of the institution to as many people as possible so that people truly feel a sense of ownership and wonderment and excitement um, and entitlement, if I can dare say, um, over you know what is happening within a museum's walls. So those are lessons that happened, you know, it feels both fast and slow, but you know, I had, after working at the Met, went on to work at the Whitney and the Brooklyn Museum. So I, you know, a deep love and admiration for, you know, the ways in which the people inside of institutional spaces have continued to do such important work and expanding the definition of what the future of a museum should look like. And, you know, that certainly I think was a pretty phenomenal journey given that, you know, when I was growing up and going out, you know, in downtown New York, um, I didn't fully understand what a curator would do. You know, I didn't understand what that responsibility was. But, you know, I, I have had uh, the great joy of having some incredible experiences that have kind of taught me the different models of how that can be shaped. And um, I think it's always something that I encourage for folks who are not in this world as of yet or who are curious about it, but perhaps are, are questioning their sense of belonging. But actually, it's wonderful to have people who have not grown up, um, you know, with major collections in their homes, right? Like to have people who maybe are, do not always have um, access to every museum, to have actually like, you know, folks who are curious and excited, right? But do not maybe, you know, have from their very beginnings, right? Uh, direct immersion into art, um, but that they have to seek it out, right? And in seeking it out, also finding a way to feel entitled to that belonging. That for me is really important. And I always feel like um, it's important to remind folks that that can be possible. Totally. Yes. Uh, so after that journey of seeing how many different institutions looked and felt, it seems like for the past three years or so, the Studio Museum has really been a special place for you. So I'm curious, what 
was it ultimately that led you there? Mm-hmm. So, you know, just a little bit about the Sudi Museum in Harlem for those who are new to our history. It is an institution that was founded in 1968, um, you know, true to its name. It has both studio in its name, museum in its name, right, and Harlem in its name because it is a place where artists got together to create an idea really of what the future of art should look like, right? And these were black artists who at the time um, were working through some, you know, amazing moments in history, thinking about questions of equity and diversity and inclusion and participation, right? And representation and empowerment. Um, And to think about ways to create one's own space, right, was as much about the idea of the museum, right, challenging the notion of what institutional space should look like, given that, of course, at that time, um, and of course, even Uh, frustratingly, right, even to this moment here and now, right, there were ongoing discussions and challenges about the ways that blackness should be represented, right, um, within art and, of course, within institutional settings. So, you know, a group of amazing artists and philanthropists and uh, activists and thinkers got together to create this incredible space um, wherein artists could both produce artwork and as well um, curators working with artists and Um, You know, artists working with curators could produce um, exhibitions and, of course, to work with, um, you know, folks along public programs and education to really comprehensively ask the questions um, is tied to the mission of, you know, what does it mean to have an institution be the nexus of black art and culture? My dad um, was born and raised in Harlem. So, you know, his way of working certainly was one that was a long and incredible relationship of documenting Harlem over time. As a photographer, he was somebody who spent many years creating this incredible archive and thinking deeply about his connections to Harlem as a community. And so, you know, just as my mom kind of had me out in the world, like, you know, kind of pounding the pavement with her and going to many experimental shows, I think I learned so much from my dad as well, of course, in terms of thinking about what these other networks look like within the arts. And the Sudi Museum was, of course, central to that constellation, thinking about the way in which so many institutions have learned from and been guided by the Sudi Museum's history its mission, its work, its incredible community of artists, right? And so, um, you know, for me, Sudi Museum, when I would kind of journey uptown to visit with my family, oftentimes was the stop alongside of where I would pop into Sylvia's, which is like, you know, was the kind of favorite for for the family meals. And um, it was great, I think, to be brought into that space early on and to be able to see, of course, the institution change over time. So, Um, When I went to graduate school, I went to school in London at Goldsmiths um, and then was there for six years working and living abroad. Um, When I decided to come back to the United States, it was really to think through um, where my belonging would be, right? And like, what are the places and spaces that feel most important to me in this art world right now? And of course, the museum really was that. So the pathway felt like a really natural progression. And I feel um, very lucky to be as part of the, the Sudi Museum community, if only because of the fact that every day it's an opportunity to kind of build toward something greater as an investment in the mission that we have. You know, so many of the artists that are in the book are working online, um, performing online. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how much of that has factored into your practice at the museum? Well, you know, I think deeply about this question of um, art and the Internet as being something that, um, you know, is as expansive as the institutional mission, right? That because black culture and black art is so deeply embedded in what it is to be in the world, 
um, that, you know, of course, a natural extension to this, right, is the ways in which blackness um, drives and engages the digital, right, that actually so much of what exists online um, is produced by black people. And so, you know, for me, my ongoing research and, and sort of thought around this, right, is as much something that, of course, has informed parts of our program, but also as well, the ways in which, uh, you know, we've expanded uh, the Sudi Museum's digital presence and thought differently about how we can connect with our audiences, especially during this absolutely bonkers past year and a half, right, where there has been this pandemic that is ongoing and certainly has asked all of us within institutions and outside of institutions what the responsibility of the institution is um, to engage the digital as an active part of sort of teaching and learning and engaging community. So, you know, the artists that are in Glitch Feminism, which is my first book that came out in 2020 in the midst of all of this world change, is a book that really looks at artists who are thinking about the digital as something that, you know, is a conceptual framework, a creative framework, um, a challenge, a provocation. Um, and so, you know, they are responding to it performatively, but also, you know, they're kind of coming of age in an era of the internet and, and thinking through the questions of what it means to, you know, have an entire generation of folks who are really growing up and growing older on, in cyberspace. Um, so, you know, for me, I think as I, you know, recognize that my role of being a curator at the Studio Museum um, engages so many exciting artists as, as I have been there, you know, I've had the privilege of working on exhibitions, um, you know, with Garrett Bradley, with Michael Armitage, with Dozy Kanu, um, with E-Jane and Nadine Pierre and Elliot Reed, all of these amazing folks who, are, of course, are part of our program with Chloe Bass. Like, gosh, there are so many. Um, so, you know, thinking about the ways in which all of these artists have such vastly different perspectives, right, about, um, you know, what it means to produce, right, and to create. But I would say like a kind of constant through line is a unique awareness of the world as, as it is seen through the and mitigated by, right, the, the lens of um, new media. Um, that it is certainly informs uh, different modes of practice and as well of a circulation of their own work, of the ways in which they are producing. And so I always see, you know, working with each of the projects that I have taken on um, over these years and over the course of my career, an opportunity to kind of expand that further and certainly to kind of push at the limits of, of the ways in which that that can be applied. One of the things that I find so refreshing about your work as a writer and curator is that, you know, although so much of the work that you highlight is time-based media, it feels like that's just somehow secondary or just incidental. You know, it feels like you're just bringing the most important artists of our time to light, and it almost seems as a given that they're working with media or internet-based formats. I'm curious, like, does that resonate with you or... Do you think that you're particularly drawn to artists working in time-based media? Hmm. I mean, I think I love time-based media just in general for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, one of them is because of the fact that it is an opportunity for people to respond in a certain way in um, active time and to challenge as well their relationship to what the generations of technology are that they're using. Um, so, you know, there's like a texture to it. There's a cadence to it, depending on the ways in which, of course, these different materials are put to use. And that from like a kind of materials perspective is always something that is really exciting to me. I'm really interested in, in the kind of decay of technology alongside of its application. And the fact that, you know, many of these works in terms of time-based media, um, you know, whether they are explicit or not, right, they engage questions of what decay and dissolution 
looks like uh, as the, as time moves on, right? So part of the thing I think that is really exciting um, is to ask questions about the ways in which artists are presenting um, both challenges within that, but also kind of leaning into the brokenness of the medium. Um, that actually the medium itself, um, very different than you know other modes of expression, always will be in motion in a way that actually cannot be controlled or predicted. And so, you know, when you go to school to study painting, for example, right, like there are certain things from a techniques perspective that feel fixed right now, right, even though I certainly would say that they are not, right, there's always an opportunity to um, transform and, um, you know, expand what that work looks like. But the part, kind of science of painting is something that has been um, deeply engaged and, and, you know, deeply schooled. And the ways in which, of course, for time-based media and for performance work that that can be made more possible is a constant um, discussion. It's something that I still think is like in many ways still quite early in its history. So, you know, that's the reason why I think I get excited about it, you know, as a, um, as a medium. But I appreciate too what you're saying is like also something about this idea of maybe it's it's just as well something too about a generation of folks, um, you know, and as well, uh, you know, if if not a generation, a cohort, right? Because I don't want to make it necessarily specific to one's um, age, right? But I think it may be a cohort of thinking. And I think very much about the incredible show that Lynn Hirschman-Leeson has on right now at the New Museum. Um, you know, I would say that Lynn is long part of this cohort, right? Or, or the incredible show that um, you know, Lorraine O'Grady has just uh, closed at the Brooklyn Museum that like these are individuals who have been part of the cohort of um, engaging performance and new media in ways that have radicalized and created ecstatic possibilities for what this next generation of thinkers and makers can do. And in this moment now, it took the, the pathway between their generation to present, right, almost to have that audience created around the work, which is what is so phenomenal. So. You know, it's kind of this this possibility of a certain kind of time travel because many of the artists who are, you know, super young and making work right now, I think that it is the time into the future that will really continue to show us their depth of contribution um, and that we are only just beginning to understand it because, as I said, right, we're still very young in some of these materials. Speaking personally as someone who can be a little bit pessimistic about tech's impact on society, I was so inspired and reinvigorated, really, that although you share many of these perspectives and you cover some of the darker aspects of how tech can mirror and even magnify you know, some of the harms of the world, despite all this, you still have a bright optimism about the enduring potential for creativity and positive community on the internet today. So, Given that, I'm curious, you know, if your teenage avatar, Love Punk 12, was coming of age on today's internet, where do you think they would be hanging out? I love that question. I am an optimist in many ways. I'm like a, certainly a realist, but I'm also an optimist. Those two things I think people sometimes find surprising that they can coexist. I don't think that it is necessary for there to be a narrative of harm-based digital media, right? Harm-based internet, harm-based uh, cyberspace, um, set aside as distinct and separate from a digital space, a cyberspace that can be emancipatory and exciting and, and um, strategic in community building that is generative, right? And, you know, engages different models of future. I think those two things can coexist. And that's part of why it's really difficult to have these conversations. 
because it isn't simple, right? Because actually these things are all intertwined with one another in the exact same ways that they are away from our screens. And I do recognize that, you know, as people have written about um, these different models of presence and to models of publics and accountability and responsibility and representation, that at points there's been, right, these kind of like fierce boundaries and limits set on either or, right? Like either in physical space or online, these are the rules of what happens there. But that, you know, the great task of what this work is, is really to understand that there are no rules. And that that is part of what makes it so absolutely terrifying is that the rules are constantly changing and the application of these technologies, right, also is constantly changing. So, you know, when I think about like my baby self, right, like Love Punk 12, you know, coming of age on the internet, I think that, you know, what was amazing as I spoke to people over many years of time, because the writing around this did not begin uh, with the interest of, of having it exist in print form. It was something that, you know, began as a, a, a sort of process research in cyberspace, right? And then like took years for me to kind of come to the place where it felt like maybe this was what it needed, right? That it needed to exist in this other format. Um, but that, you know, in the discussions that happened in between, really the common thread was that there are so many people who have engaged the digital as a place to find themselves, right? In so many ways. And that that actually is not something that breaks out as tied to age or location or generation or politic even, right? But that actually the through line is that there are so many people who are trying to do this work to just figure out what it means to be a body and exist on the internet and have that be something that actually is both fixed and mutable um, at the same time. So, you know, within this moment of platforms, I think like a Love Punk 12, you know, or um, you know, a version of my younger self, a platform like maybe like Somewhere Good, which is like this new platform that's kind of on the rise of sorts and thinking about ways to create intersectional space, critical space, rigorous space on the internet. I would say like that would be maybe a place that I would have gone to if, if that was, you know, existing in the 90s. Like the idea too of having a place where we are able to kind of share different parts of ourselves. I've always appreciated like the duality um, and a symbiosis between and across Twitter versus like a platform like Instagram. I'm somebody who has always loved as well, like the culture around a Vine or um, even a Tumblr in its early stages, right? And I think these these are ones that are, of course, now um, out of date. But certainly, you know, when I think about what they offered in terms of different models of visual culture, that they've done so much to contribute to these other platforms that now um, exist and in, in are in constant use in our day to day today. So, you know, my hope is for the future that perhaps there will be kind of constant moments of redressing, right? Like asking questions about the ways in which some of the power of these larger platforms can be taken back and that um, different spaces that can be more alternative or offer different sites of discourse and dialogue can be made possible. I think part of the work that your book is doing in bringing more intersectionality to cyber feminism and being more queer and trans inclusive, it really you know, reminds me of a conversation that's happening in the conservation world more and more these days about really acknowledging and discussing how conservation is not neutral and the decisions about what to treat and what to care for and what to fix defines and shapes history, truly. So I'm curious, in your research, what are some stories or voices from this history of glitch feminism that haven't been told or have been lost? Wow, that's a deep question. Um, 
Well, not to keep harping on Vine, but I will say like, I mean, I'm going to I'll harp on it because I actually just think it's like it actually is a kind of amazing question. And I feel such a sense of panic, for lack of a better word, when I see the amazing archives that are being created on other platforms like, you know, on Instagram, on TikTok, what have you. Right. Like there are, you know, and then someone basically has their account reported on and the entire archive is gone. Right. That's essentially what's happening. So when you think about the vulnerability of what really are like performance archives that are are being produced at a scale and a frequency that is faster and more vast than we have ever seen in history, the danger or the devastation of the platform shutting down is the equivalent of burning down a building, right? It is that's essentially what it is. And I, I feel so um, impassioned about this as for artists to think about like what that means, because, you know, it is monumental to think about these gaps in history in ways where parts of what really should be preserved as these kind of monuments to not only the technologies but how they're being used and who the people are who are kind of key stakeholders within that production right Um, within the economy of it within the circulation of it but you know as well to consider how that can you know have different lives over time right and so You know, one question that I often ask myself is like, you know, in the future, as we look back and we think about, you know, as a curator, if one were to produce, right, an exhibition that, um, you know, engages different touch points across technologies and these platforms and the question of performativity, which is something that, um, you know, I think many people um, continue to wring their hands about. It's like, you know, where where is that? Where is it possible? What is the work that needs to happen now to make sure that 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 story can be told? So, you know, Link Rot certainly is a part of that bigger picture, too. You know, I, I think very much so about um, MySpace and Angel Fire and GeoCities. Like, these are, are different platforms um, where I feel like that people use them as canvases in really incredible ways. And um, to the point of even right now, right, I'm thinking about even like LimeWire, right, from a sign of sonic perspective, the, the ways that these um, different tools and engines can be replicated or reshown um, presents very unique challenges. And so um, the possibility of erasure or invisibility or obsolescence, right, becomes really critical within that. And almost maybe a, a kind of part of the memory of the technology or the failure of its memory, which um, maybe is, is what the exercise is. Perhaps that the whole idea is that you are creating, uh, we are all creating, right, performances on these different platforms, um, feeding into um, these different channels, modes of our creativity, always at the brink of having it uh, just cease to exist altogether, right? And so, like, something about that is really devastating to me, which is why, like, you know, I think I'm someone who constantly is, like, trying to back things up. I see things online. I'm like, I'll put this in a amazing Dropbox folder and I have to send it to myself. And, you know, I'm like constantly thinking about the ways where like there can be like multiple places that some of the amazing things that are existing as material digitally, right, can have like uh, like multiple historical records because I don't think that they are um, of minimal consequence. I think these things actually are so, so important um, and say so much about the condition of being a human being in the world. And so for the future, right? Like that's my great crisis that I certainly share with many conservators. It's like, how do we think about the the mammoth task it takes to do some of that care work outside of the technologies, right? It's even just about to the, the the power of these platforms, right? To to make visible or not, or to um, preserve or not, right? By the sheer possibility of their existing at all. These different generations, I think, of internet are certainly a part of what that looks like and the ways in which people are quite literally building kind of a collective consciousness um, in, in thinking through 
the different chapters of what it means to engage uh, digitally and and via various technologies. Yeah, you know, and something that struck me while reading the book and seeing these screenshots of kind of performative works that existed on Instagram or other platforms is that, you know, in some cases, if if these don't ever find institutional homes, that chapter in your book might be the only place that, you know, an art history student 50 years from now can see any evidence of that artwork ever existing. There are so many things that I see online that I like, I have like every day I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, like someone has to save this. Right. And so, you know, I'm hoping in the, the archives of the future, whatever that looks like in kind of this like landscape with like much digital detritus that there, of course, will be many people like I, you know, all the screenshots people take and, the, you know, the kind of technologies that people keep of their different generations of phones and such that like perhaps a future version of a collective archive will certainly be about what is discovered there. Right. So I think a lot about that. And I agree, like it was actually one of the um, parts of what made me think deeply about what it means to have many of the work writing, essaying around glitch feminism exist online versus um, in print form, that actually these things serve different parts of history. And so my hope is that they can remain in conversation with one another. So I know this interview is catching you kind of at an inflection point. You are the new director of The Kitchen, which is so exciting, but you haven't started yet. I'm spiritually in both places right now, let's just say. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. So, you know, despite the fact that you haven't started yet, um, I was hoping to, you know, to whatever extent you can that you can share kind of what your vision for The Kitchen is. I have such excitement about this next chapter of The Kitchen for several reasons. One is because this idea idea of the experimental is so wonderful and ecstatic and generous, right? But also something that is so troubling and challenging. And, you know, experimental as part of what the kitchen's work has been, um, has been so central to its history. And so the reason why I feel so deeply thrilled to be stepping into this role, but also like really pushing my sleeves up to begin to think critically about how parts of this question of experimental, right, can be brought into today's conversation, into the celebration of the kitchen's 50th year, is to be thinking actively about, you know, this idea of experimental intersecting with questions of privilege and access and presence, right? That um, the idea of being experimental has, has always been um, assumed as being something that, you know, is possible for many, right? And in reality, actually, when we kind of really closely examine the notion of the avant-garde, the notion of experimental work, right? There are as much um, parts of it that can be rarefied um, and made exclusive as there are for anything else. And that is, I think, the thing that, you know, is one of the great challenges of this next chapter of the institution is to be active and aware about the ways in which these definitions can be, um, you know, both scrutinized and exalted and refracted and redefined. All of this, too, being part of a really important and kind of uh, loop of continuity between other organizations around the city. So, you know, of course, when we think about this idea of the avant-garde, we're thinking too about um, the ways in which Studio Museum being founded in 1968 was only, you know, several years before the kitchen, right? Across the city, there were these two major moments of art history that kind of came up within, you know, a five-year arc of one another and, you know, really have transformed in their own right what experimental really should look like. How do you give artists 
the space to take epic and incredible risks. The vision really right now is to think about how that can be pushed even further. That this idea of risk taking is something that I think has both ebbed and flowed across the questions of institutional presence across many different places and spaces. I do recognize that, you know, throughout the course of a pandemic and a world crisis, right, often the reaction to crisis is to become more conservative, right? And, you know, within this is a great opportunity to kind of refuse that. So for me, I'm, I'm, you know, certainly committed to this moment because I recognize that the role that the kitchen plays, as much as the role that the Studio Museum plays in, in this same period, is so critical in giving artists a place to grow and not a place only to arrive fully realized, right? But rather actually in progress. The question of the avant-garde is something that I'm really curious about. And I think that not everyone has been included within this idea of experimental space. I think that you know, the ways in which that these things have played out across art history are actually kind of amazing because sometimes the spaces created to refuse certain paradigms, right, actually, you know, as they grow, just by nature, they become institutions in their own right. So it becomes the responsibility of the institution to ask the question of, you know, how do you kind of allow yourself to keep changing and transforming so that these systems, right, are in constant interrogation, right? They're in constant motion and have the capacity to be expanded and redefined. So, you know, I'm really invested in what these next steps are because I, I truly believe, right, that a greater inclusivity of what experimental can be can be a part of this vision for the kitchen and really, too, a vision for what the future of art should look like right now. Because I think that, you know, many of our amazing institutional peers um, across this period of time, the points that have been most successful were the points where people allowed for experimentation to be made possible in a moment that felt impossible. And so, you know, this is the great task, I think, of the future of the institution more broadly, like, you know, as we think about what that can even be, what should institutions even look like, is, you know, the ways to build in that flex space to have things be both elastic and as well visioned. And so, you know, I'm super committed to thinking about the artists who are part of that next step and as well to the ways in which the kitchen can be of best support to some of that progress. And that is part of what these next steps will look like. Amazing. And, you know, I think that what you're saying in, in a lot of ways speaks to the broader calls for institutional change with regards to equity and inclusion and really just questioning the ways that institutions were built. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that. I think um, change is not an event. I think about that often because I, I do appreciate that some of what has occurred over this past year and a half has made us all feel at points as if a switch was flipped, right? And that certain things happened overnight. But in reality, you know, much of what has continued to culminate in this moment right now really is a symptom and a product of all the things that have happened that have brought us to this point. And so institutions certainly are a part of that um, in terms of the storytelling of it. And, and to your point, the parts of it that are deeply mired in systems of supremacy. I think, you know, within this idea of a future space of institution, I recognize that the amazing and, you know, challenging and terrifying exercise of many institutions and, and kind of creative spaces is to kind of let go of, of the idea of what a space should be. You know, I think that there is so much within these histories that unfortunately was not built to love us. 
And so, you know, like to answer to the histories of now, right, like when people are going inside of various institutional spaces and they um, are expecting to see themselves, right, that that actually as an act and a possibility is something that is still being built, largely because these systems historically have not always supported that nor made it possible. So, you know, again, you know, to your point of this question of conservation, like what is kept and, and maintained versus what is not, right, is really a show of, of sort of values of systems, right, and ways in which two people express their vast and varied biases. I think it's helpful, too, to kind of look at the broader scope of institutions in the world right now and think about that the you know, great joy of a future institutional space is one that really fully embeds itself in answering to the challenges and questions and, and tasks of the community around it. Um, and that isn't always easy. I think you know, it will come with, at points with a lot of tenderness and hard work and confusion and debate, um, largely because you know, to the point of constituents and publics, right, it is not always clear right, the ways in which different institutions historically and as they invest in a future, build what those publics are and make investments into that, right? Some of that can feel quite actually opaque. So I recognize that it's a unique time for some of that building. And I think that the criticisms tied to, you know, labor and equity and, and histories, right? Like that actually it's a really necessary part of what this growth is. And you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable at points and being willing to allow for artists to provide feedback to the institution that that actually should be a natural part of what that collaborative work of production um, and creative presence should be. Legacy Russell, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to be as smart as you someday. Oh my gosh, I'm so honored to have your amazing questions. I've been so, so just thrilled to be in discussion with you. So I so appreciate you inviting me. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this conversation. If you haven't already, be sure to pick up a copy of Glitch Feminism. I truly think it is one of the most relevant texts of our time. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're putting out new episodes every week. And please do share the episode with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All of that helps immensely. Art and Obsolescence is a sponsored project of the New York Foundation for the Arts. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible gift to support our work, head on over to artandobsolescence.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Ben Fino Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence.